Hello, you're listening to A Little Bit of Largham, a podcast exploring a more connected and human approach to climate conversations, a space for questioning, learning and discovering the many ways a sense of balance can come to be. I hope that you're having a lovely day whenever it is you're listening to this. This is actually the second time I've recorded this introduction. Things have been a bit chaotic and it's taken a bit longer than I thought to get round to releasing this episode and as so much has been happening over the past few months, I thought it would kind of make sense just to re-record it, um, just to highlight a couple of things. I'll try and keep it fairly brief though because today's episode is with such a lovely human being who I enjoyed talking with immensely and definitely learned a lot from, so I'm really excited to get into that. But basically this episode was actually recorded pre-COP26 so I thought that I'd just add in a couple of things about that. Um, In all honesty I really didn't have any high expectations or many expectations at all for what would come out of COP26. And although this was the case I still couldn't help feeling incredibly deflated and frustrated throughout and beyond a lot of the negotiations Um, and I'm sure this might be something that you relate to as well. Something I really struggle with is how distanced the negotiations are from the realities of the climate crisis and I can't help but think how different the outcome might be if world leaders were actually forced to confront the realities rather than being isolated away in this huge airport-like building as it's been described. Yeah, it just seems very bizarre to me. The tagline of keep 1.5 alive that seemed to be thrown around a lot around COP is something that also grated on me. I would argue that based on the promises uh, that have been made at these negotiations, 1.5 has definitely not been kept alive and as civil society we really need to keep holding governments accountable to do more. Even if all of the promises that were made at COP26 were carried out, we are still on target for 2.4 degrees warming and apologies for getting very overly negative, but I do want to flag a couple of things that I feel haven't been talked about enough around COP26, as often the media will present it in a way that gives a false sense of security, a sort of heightened optimism, which I really fear will lead to more complacency, which we just can't afford to happen, because this is, you know, people's lives now are being so horrifically impacted by this, and countries such as ours have a huge responsibility because countries such as ours who aren't experiencing many impacts of the climate crisis, we are contributing so much to the problem and the destructive systems that we have perpetuated historically and through to now. We really need to be holding our governments accountable. Richer nations have failed to raise the 100 billion annual climate funding that they had promised to vulnerable countries, which is hugely problematic and unjust in so many ways because the vulnerable countries that are already experiencing the huge impacts, that finance would have allowed more adaptability in these countries to be able to cope with the increasing extreme weather events. But this money is not going there. Um, And this is something that really needs to be highlighted more. And these richer nations really need to be held to a higher account and made to pay these finances. And when we think about the inaccessibility around COP, this was really horrific, not only from the point of view of who could actually attend, you know, it was probably the most inaccessible COP that has been in existence due to vaccine inequality um, and people from the nations being most impacted, having fewer delegates to be able to bring um, because of the finance associated with it. And when you think about the countries being most impacted, if 
representatives from those countries aren't there in representative numbers to be able to talk about these realities, the outcome already is going to be an unjust one because of the massive lack of representation at the COP. There was also celebration over the stopping of deforestation by 2030, but there was definitely not enough mention of how this was actually a failed target that had been set for 2020. And another thing I want to highlight is the outrage that came in response to India and China wanting the change in language from phase out to phase down coal, uh, which of course, you know, it does have huge implications, but there wasn't very much highlighting around there wasn't language even about phasing down oil and gas. And this is very much rooted in the fact that countries like the UK, Eurocentric countries and the US are so reliant on oil and gas Uh, whereas we've already been phasing out coal. So having phase out is okay for us because we've already done that, but we've been burning it for so much longer. So the fact that there isn't language around phasing down even of oil and gas is hugely unjust when we think about the responsibilities that countries have for addressing their emissions. Um, So that was another thing that was really disappointing and very disappointing that it's not been highlighted more in mainstream media. But of course, with every situation, it's not binary and there have been some positives to come out of COP. And there are some great summary articles and podcasts that I do want to share with you that outline the key takeaways um, and I'll put links into the show notes. But off the top of my head, I've listened to some really great podcast episodes around COP26, such as the Yikes podcast, Outrage and Optimism have done one as well, or they've done quite a few around COP26, speaking to different people that have been there. Uh, And definitely check out the COP26 Coalition YouTube because they have loads and loads of webinars on there uh, and really useful information to get a sort of roundup of what happened at COP26. I think for me, what I found the most hopeful and positive outcomes of COP26 was definitely the mobilisation of civil society. The huge sense of community, people coming together in solidarity to demand climate justice, the mass movement of young people, grassroots organisations and campaigns from all over the world coming together to share knowledge and experiences. And there were also many, many incredibly powerful speeches from young activists on the front lines of the climate crisis. And these really need to be spread far and wide. So I'll also share these links in the episode notes as well. There really is so much that I could talk about around this, but the resources mentioned above and in the show notes will be much more articulate and thorough summaries than what I could kind of give here. So I really recommend that you check them out. The last thing that I want to say though is if you were involved in a lot of mobilisations and activism over COP26 and you're now experiencing burnout or overwhelm, please know that you're not alone in feeling that. And given the horrific events that are happening all around the world, so much violence and injustice, it's completely rational to feel pain and grief. And I just want to refer to something that I learned from Dr. Caroline Hickman, who's an incredible climate psychologist, who I had the absolute honour of speaking on a panel discussion with in a COP26 Youth Hub webinar. And basically what she says is feeling anxious and overwhelmed about the state of the world is a totally rational response. It's not something that's an individual issue or something that's wrong with you for feeling that way. If someone isn't feeling that way, then that's what needs to be questioned. And ultimately, that's kind of the reason that we continue to be in the multiple crises that we face. 
the crisis lies in the lack of compassion, justice and humanity that we see within widespread society. And the fact that you care is so important and valuable. But please do make sure that your activism is sustainable because this is really crucial. Acting in community and ensuring collective care and well-being is embedded in these spaces has a really important role to play. A more just and sustainable future sadly won't be created overnight, so we really need to be able to look after ourselves and to continue advocating for these things in the long term. So please be sure that you are taking time to look after yourselves and others in your community to sustain the activism moving forwards. Okay, so enough rambling, I'm now going to get on to introducing today's guest. So if the audio changes a little bit now, I do apologise, but I'm going to nab this part from the audio that I recorded before. But I'm really looking forward to sharing with you today's conversation. It's been a while in the planning, um, but I'm really grateful that it's finally happened. So today I'm talking with Irini, who works within area-based conservation. She's one of the co-coordinators for the Global Youth Biodiversity Network, specifically the European chapter, which is how I came to meet her, which I'm very, very grateful for. And she's also the Youth Assistant Coordinator for the Global Landscapes Forum and works within the Youth in Landscapes Initiative. Eleni's originally from Greece, specifically the island of Creta. And for her bachelor's degree, she studied chemistry and then went on to study environmental sciences for her master's. And this focused a lot on environmental policy and sustainable development diplomacy. We'd been trying to plan this conversation for a while, but it was so worth the wait. And I'm really grateful that Eleni found the time to speak with me. She has such a wonderfully warm energy and I learned a great deal from speaking with her. And it's definitely left me with a lot of food for thought, many questions, along with incredibly rich answers. In the conversation, we discuss the inseparable nature of biodiversity from the climate crisis and how this connection is not being communicated strongly enough and reflecting the complexity within it. Elini talks about the need to centre a rights-based approach in conservation and restoration. There's an incredible need to connect biodiversity, conservation and human rights, which historically has not been the case with the roots of conservation very much tied within colonialism. We delve into conversations around whether there can be such a thing as ethical money in a capitalist system and the complexities existing in funding environmental projects, be it on grassroots or NGO levels. Anini outlines the role that environmental policy can play, as well as its limitations, and why the term intersectional environmentalism is an ideology that needs to be much more widely embraced. This was such an interesting and thought-provoking conversation, and it really made me realise how much more I have to learn in this area, and also how many questions we need to be continuously asking and pushing for transparency where and whenever possible. I really hope you enjoy this episode and that it sparks your interest to delve deeper into these topics. I'm so glad that we found a time to do this. I'm so excited for the conversation. I mean, it took a little while, but I think that that, that time is worth it for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm so happy to be um, here with you, Marla. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, so I have to say this is my very first podcast. So I, it's, it's fun, but I'm happy that I can see you. Uh, <laughs> and that Zoom can hold space for that because I would feel so weird if I had to just speak on on the microphone 
<laughs> but that surprises me so much because um, I've uh, watched a few like Instagram lives with you and things like that, which I've loved listening to and watching. So I assumed that you might have been a, a, a podcast person who's done it a few times. So. <laughs> No, I, I, I'm listening to a lot of podcasts. I, I love podcasts. I listen to quite a lot of episodes of yours as well. I'm currently really loving a podcast that is called the Yikes podcast. Um, you probably know it. It's, uh, it's fantastic. I love podcasts. I think they are so you know, interesting, especially with um, like if you cook and you have something on the background. But I've never done a podcast. So I'm so happy to that like you, you invited me here. <laughs> It's so nice to have you here. Um, I'm really, really looking forward to it. So first of all, just a little introduction of who you are and what you do. This can be as long, short, formal or informal as you would like it to be. (laughs) Wow. Who am I? That's a question. Um, So hi, everyone. My name is Irini. My name means peace in in other languages. Um, So... That's a that's a nice name, I guess. Uh, it's it's a it's a word I think we need to embrace a lot in general. I come originally from Greece, um, uh, from the island of Creta. So I am an islander uh, from the south of Europe. I studied chemistry for my bachelor's, and then I did environmental sciences for my master's degree. And I focused a lot in environmental policy and sustainable development diplomacy during my master's. I'm currently uh, one of the co-coordinators of the European chapter of the Global Youth Biodiversity Network. And I'm also the youth assistant coordinator of the Global Landscapes Forum and the Youth in Landscapes Initiative. That's my profession, but given Global Youth Biodiversity Network is my volunteer work. Um, what else? I am vegan for many, many years now. I do a lot of yoga. Uh, I sound like such a stereotype right now, but it's true. <laughs> uh, I love reading books. I think it's my favorite thing to do. Um, I love to draw and paint, and I love uh, traveling. I love languages, I love meeting new people, um, and I love my cat, and my friends, and my family, and everything. I should say hello to them as well, but uh, yeah, I think that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> I love that the love for your cat came before the family. It was like, I love my I cat. Know. <laughs> <laughs> well, what can I do? <laughs> oh, that was an amazing introduction. Thank you so much. Um, next, I would I would love to ask um, what your avenue was into working within the environmental sphere. I know it was part of your studies, but how yeah how you came into working in that area. So as I as I said, I studied chemistry, which is a fundamental science, um, and it was something I always wanted to do in my life. I always wanted to be a scientist since I can remember. I do have you know diaries from when I'm six, seven, eight years old where I say that I want to work in a lab and make huge discoveries and blah, blah, blah. But then I, w- I went on like to university and I, I realized that this is not what I do. And then I had an identity crisis because all of my life I wanted to be a scientist. And then suddenly it was not what I wanted anymore. So who was I? And then I took like a break um, between my bachelor's and my master's to you know, redefine, understand again who I am. And that comes, of course, with a lot of privilege of having a 
parents supporting me and like family in the background to support me in that, me finding what, what I want to do. I was always very into nature as, as, an, as a thing. Like I always loved being on the outdoors. I did a lot of outdoor sports in my life. I come from an island. I was raised on an island. So Creta is such a beautifully biodiverse place. So I had the opportunity to, to visit my villages very often like my grandparents living villages so I have been I was always very connected with the land and the earth so it it was something when I was looking for myself let's say around 23 24 I was like okay there is there is this constant in my life that I've never addressed that I could potentially have as a profession so why not I went on to do my master's, as I mentioned before. And during my master's, I um, had the opportunity to go to a conference in Germany. I studied in the Netherlands for my master's. And I went to a conference in, the, in Germany that they really changed my life. It was all about rights, rights of nature, rights of people, rights of indigenous peoples. Um, and I feel it was a, like, I can pinpoint that as a point in my life where my environmentalism as a person, my approach to environmentalism changed completely. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to hold space for all this diversity that exists in the world and, and understand and never stop exploring how much humans and nature are connected. And basically, I learn myself the separation that we as Western society has between, have between nature and people. Um, so... Yeah, I was super lucky to now be hired by this very organization that changed a lot in the course of my personal perspective around the environment. So this is how I entered. It it, became, it started as an as you know something that was natural to me, the environment, like being happy in nature, and I was super lucky to be able to work on that again. That's incredible. It sounds like that was such a powerful moment um, for you that really transformed so much. It was, it was, it was definitely, I cried for three days straight. Like it was a three days conference or like something like that. I was just crying the entire time. There were speakers on stage and I was just crying. <laughs> but I guess I, I needed that. Yeah. I learned so much in these three days and then I never stopped, I feel. Yeah. <laughs> and I love as well how it goes to show sometimes what we imagine to be the career we see ourselves in or the path we see ourselves taking the reality isn't always the same as the dream, right? Definitely, definitely. And it's not, this is not by no means like that science is not fascinating or amazing. It's just, I felt, you know, it was just not for me. Um, yeah, just that. <laughs> so next I'm intrigued to ask, how was it that you became involved with the Global Youth Biodiversity Network European chapter? I'm so grateful that it was through this network that I found you, which is amazing. But yeah, I'd love to hear more about your volunteer work and what it involves within the organization. Cool. Okay. So how was I involved with Gibbon? So for my thesis, I uh, was I use the word privilege so much that I'm sure that people will laugh at me, but um, I was privileged enough to be able to afford um, a trip to Montreal and then to Rome to follow the negotiations under the um, Convention on Biological Diversity, which is this agreement that the global agreement we have for, um, for biodiversity. And there I, I saw these like, young people that they were representing Global Youth Biodiversity Network and they were all together and it was like such a 
joyous uh, group of people that were so passionate and they knew so much and they were very active in the negotiations and they were taking space to talk and express their ideas. So then I, after a few days being there, oh, that was my cat, sorry. <laughs> a few days being there, I managed like, to have the courage and go and be like, hi, uh, who are you? What are you doing? Um, how can I be involved? So I, they were super nice. They explained to me how to be part of both. Gibbon. And then for a while, I did nothing with Gibbon. So I just, you know, um, subscribed to or registered, I don't know how the right word is, to the platform. And then a few months later, I think I met Jessica Micklin somehow, who is one other, like one of the founders of Gibbon Europe um, and one of the co-coordinators currently. And um We've been talking, she was such a sweet person. And then I started getting involved in Gibbon Europe a little bit more and like doing things. And then because it was the first year of Gibbon Europe um, running, somehow we were like, okay, we know that this is not super democratic um, and we should have elections and we should do things like that. But just for now, for the first year, let's see who is interested in just helping because Jessica was doing a lot of these things alone. Like there were a couple of other people, but the majority of, of weight was on her. And I was already quite involved. So that's how I uh, kind of got the, the title of co-coordinator, uh, which is really not important. I think it's just, you know, that you have a little bit more time to uh, give to your volunteering. So you can you can have that. Uh, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Oh, that's super cool. And yeah, I've loved being a part of the network because obviously at different times throughout our lives, the amount of engagement we have in one area, maybe higher or lower, depending on what's happening in your local area or other things, but it's always felt like such a supportive space, uh, which has always been so lovely. And because mm-hmm. I think <laughs> there can always be activist spaces that can become become quite capitalistic almost in their mentality and that's something I've never felt with Gibbon which has been a really beautiful experience. Oh definitely that's that's a very good point a lot of a lot a lot of activist space can become that or they can become uh, is that a, I'm not sure if that's the phrase in English like they're just like the work they do is activism for activism it's like just to disagree or just, or, or they can also become a little bit hostile, like who is more activistic than the other? I'm doing so many, but you are still doing that and like pointing figures to who is, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's such a safe space and it's so exciting you know, to meet people from all around Europe that are super interesting in what's happening and come from a diverse background as well. Like I love that it's not just, you know, Central Europe, which is big when it comes to green political parties, but there are also people from my country, or people from from East Europe um, and all of those places. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So I'd love to delve in now talking a bit more about biodiversity and biodiversity targets are continuously failing to be met. And so I wanted to ask you why you think biodiversity loss is not being seen as an urgent crisis to address and why it's so essential that we really recognize the urgency of this crisis. (laughs) <laughs> I wish, you know, uh, I almost think that if I had the answer to that, <laughs> I would probably be the president of everything currently. <laughs> no, I'm joking, but um, no, I think you phrased it quite nicely. Like, you know, despite the fact that 
biodiversity loss is such a profound threat. Like it's so obvious and it's, it's everywhere around us. It is predominantly the climate crisis that has been the most pressing environmental concern. And these two are also seen as separate. There are many, like I actually do not have a concrete answer to that, but I have some thinking around it. One could be that the climate crisis has um, better marketing. I, if I have to be completely honest about, about that, and by better marketing, I don't just mean storytelling, infographics, etc. But it's also that there are so many, like if I ask you to tell me a biodiversity activist, you probably have to think twice. But if I ask you to tell me a climate activist, you probably have like five people from the top of your head. So even by starting with a simple thought of people talking about it, there is so much less people that have some level of recognition that talk about biodiversity. And I don't want this point to be seen as, oh, so we necessarily need a face in a movement for people to know about it. It's not about that. It is that when you put something in the public sphere, it's easier for more people to be interested and it's easier maybe for more people to put pressure on politicians um, and it's easier for more people to demand change for that. And then this one other thought I've had is that biodiversity as a concept, as an idea, as, as, a, as a notion, as a term, involves such a complex system of, of things. Is it the ecosystem? Is it the animals? Is it the plants, the species, the, the soil? It's everything, basically. Anything that is alive on this planet, the, the, the mushrooms, the, the, the microbiome, it's all biodiversity. So in a way, I think it hasn't succeeded a lot in translating into a common language. When I say common, I mean a language that people would understand. I feel, I feel it feels like such a heavy thing or that people just associate it with polar bears. Uh, so in both cases, if people feel it's too complex or if people just associate with polar bears or pandas or IUCN red list, <laughs> this in a way is, is a way to keep people out. Then I don't know, I guess the person that is more familiar with those things than me, like with the climate crisis and biodiversity and the history of it would probably say that there are so many political reasons, uh, reasons as well. Um, that the states got more interested in that, that um, we have a long history of states discussing about the climate crisis. We had the Paris Agreement, which from a political perspective, it's a, a you know, monumental time in history and biodiversity never had its climate agreement, its Paris Agreement, sorry. There are a lot of things that are part of that. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure there are so many other reasons that people could think of, but I'm happy to say that I feel that this is changing still not big enough because if you see you know that the data from from the like articles that go around it's so little compared to what it is like the climate crisis is so big but i feel it's changing i see more and more articles in mainstream like uh discussions mainstream uh, article and media that they talk about the biodiversity i'm sure a big role in that is for example the intergovernmental science policy platform on biodiversity ecosystem services the IPES, as we say, um, when it got published a couple of years ago, biodiversity suddenly became like, you know, a public 
thing to discuss. And like people were talking about how we're living in a mass extinction and what biodiversity needs. Now, why it is urgently to address it? We are part of the biodiversity of this planet. Like there's so many reasons that I could say, but if I could say just one is humans are part of the biodiversity of this planet. And if we don't understand that, that our own life, the food we eat, anything we use, things we use for medical reasons, ourselves as a species, we are part of the biodiversity of this planet. If we don't address that, it is like not addressing the, the issues we have ourselves and our own lives, right? <laughs> Thank you so much for all of that. It was so profound in many ways for me hearing you speak about it. And I was just like, yes, yes, with so many things that you were saying. And and I think something that really stood out for me when you were speaking about how biodiversity, like it's such a complex thing to understand with so many facets. I think that is also the way that if the climate crisis was considered in the way it should be, would be thought about. But I think the way that the the climate crisis is portrayed in the media and things, it takes one aspect of it and doesn't recognize the interconnectedness. So I feel like that's probably why biodiversity isn't talked about as much because at the moment when we talk about the climate crisis, we're speaking about that one part in the mainstream of how it's talked about um, and the small aspects of climate activism, which does encompass the intersectionality like that, that would then encompass biodiversity because it would understand the connectedness of everything, if that makes <laughs> sense. So it almost feels like, it's, <laughs> you know, if I, that was something like a just little realization I was having, like listening to you talk of that makes so much sense because there's so much complexity within all of it Mm -hmm. until we recognize how it's all connected. People aren't going to speak about biodiversity as much because they haven't taken the time to recognize all of that connections, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It does. It totally does. And, you know, it's, um, it's also like the way people separate those spaces, you know, climate and biodiversity as if it's happening on two other like different planets this always amazes me. And I know that if you take it from a policy perspective, like with the Rio conventions, there was the one for the climate, there was one for biodiversity, one for desertification. So the topics were kind of separated on a policy perspective. But then if you, and then this tickled down in science and it tickled down in other places as well. But then I'm so happy to see more and more science, more and more knowledge holders, more and more people that are in the space to talk about how these things are interconnected. And for example, biodiversity shouldn't just be seen as a means to achieve addressing the climate crisis. And biodiversity is not something that is just a solution uh, to the climate crisis, but it's a crisis on itself. And these crises are interconnected because one very recently, the, there was this publication that I'm probably not quoting very uh, <laughs> properly that, um, that said, I, I think it was in Nature, the, um, the scientific magazine, that said that the Amazon rainforest is on a tipping point of switching from um, absorbing carbon to basically releasing more carbon than it absorbs. And when you talk about the Amazon, it's one, like for one of the biggest biodiversity hotspots on the planet. So just in this place of the planet, you can really see the interconnectedness of those two things. And one really 
uh, perpetuates the problems that the other creates. Like it's a cycle of, you know, you are disturbing the landscape or the seascape. You are doing things that are not sustainable to the landscape and the seascapes. Um, and this includes, you know, financial flows. This includes um, the way we like understand development. This includes the way we understand progress. This includes the way we live, the way we produce, the way we consume. So the climate and the biodiversity crisis are both basically the, 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 the different side of the same coin. And unless they are seen this way, um, I think it's kind of, I don't want to be negative, but I think it would be very hard to you know, address one and the other. I fully understand that you, know, you need to create spaces where people can come together and understand what is happening with one thing because one is already complex enough but then if you build the walls instead of bridges between those spaces where people focus more on biodiversity and climate if you perpetuate the silos that we've been having for the past 40 years then i don't think like it, it hasn't worked so why would it work now <laughs> such a good point for sure yeah i couldn't agree more and I'd love to also move on to another way that we seem to be putting up bridges, uh, putting up walls rather than building bridges. I love that metaphor. That's a beautiful one to use. I'm definitely going to use that more often. Um, but yeah, for sure. But yeah, within biodiversity as well, um, it seems that we put up more walls with discussing human rights alongside it rather than recognizing their connection and I know that you have experience working in area-based conservation measures uh, so I'd love to hear a bit more about what this work involves and whether there are any particular experiences you want to share from this work. Sure okay um, so area-based conservation measures or maybe as most people here in Europe at least might have heard of what this is because maybe this is quite a you know um, a specific uh, way to call it it's protected areas or natural reserves um, this is how we usually call them you know in Europe and in other places area-based protected measures is probably the best thing that not the best thing sorry the first thing you know that comes to mind when when you talk about conservation and you know it's it's not a surprise that it's it will continue to, to be here in, in the upcoming agreement for the biodiversity. It's, it's something that people um, are very interested in how we can protect terrestrial and marine ecosystems by separating uh, people from uh, humans from, from nature. So my work, um, unfortunately, doesn't involve any practical, like on the field, on a natural reserve, or like working with the conservation project. It's more on a theoretical level. So I worked for my thesis um, that I mentioned before. I worked on other effective area-based conservation measures. A bunch of words put next to each other. In short, this is called OICMs. It's a beautiful beautiful monster of words <laughs> that was part of the Aichi targets, which are the targets of the previous biodiversity, global biodiversity agreement, specifically Aichi 11. And with time, negotiations, people pushing for it, it got uh, a definition. And because I had the pleasure to meet the people that brought this discussion up and managed to get this, um, this uh, term to get a definition and to start, like, to start using it around, what they really wanted to achieve through that is 
to basically disrupt a little bit the idea that conservation, nature conservation, means that humans shouldn't be part of the landscape and part of the ecosystem. So my research was mostly in knowing that this is a perspective of the people that pushed for this language to get a more formal recognition. I met these people, I interviewed them, I got really inspired by what they wanted to do with this um, term. But then as we know that when a term gets formalized, it very often gets co-opted, or it doesn't mean that the way a term is going to start, it's actually going to be applied. And since there, there was not a lot of progress when it comes to implementation and guidelines yet when I started researching that, I wanted to hear from representatives of indigenous peoples and local communities and and people that come from different geographies and different landscapes to hear from them if they were included in the process of developing this definition and the guidelines that existed by then if they feel that this is a topic that can address their um, their needs uh, because when we talk about protected areas, it's almost inevitable to talk about violation of human rights and land rights and evictions from areas where indigenous peoples or local communities have been living for many, many years. There, unfortunately, there is a lot of harsh history with that. There is hope because there is a lot of change, but we need to recognize that the history is there. Um, so yeah, my research, my thesis took me to Montreal, as I said, took me to Rome. I had the pleasure to work with um, amazing people and explore, you know, what this new cohort, let's say, like this new this new box of area-based uh, conservation measures included. So yeah, that's uh, that's my involvement with that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, I couldn't agree more with the incredible need to connect. Um, biodiversity with human rights and and recognize that conservation can't separate people from the land because in that way it is a violation of human rights and you've kind of answered my next question in what you said before but I just wanted to open up the space in case you had anything else you wanted to add uh, around your perspectives on the connections between biodiversity and human rights and why they can't be separated as issues. Oh, this is such a, um, I, could, I could literally speak for hours about that. I, I, I can't say, you know, I understand all the complexities of that or I have lived it. It's not my lived experience. It's more what I've come to know through the experiences and the amazing knowledge that people have shared with me. When it comes to nature conservation, I don't think that anyone would say that people wanting to, you know, protect a forest or a marine area um, come with bad intentions so they don't come with intentions to violate people's rights but conservation on its own um, unfortunately comes from a history of a lot of racism and ecological racism and colonization and the idea that quote-unquote poor people cannot uh, take care of their landscape so this has created a long history of human rights violations um, that I'm very happy to see like big, I don't want to name any organization, but many, many big organizations are taking a turn and they are actively trying to change and recognize a history that unfortunately comes with conservation. And there are so many community-led projects and there's so much interest 
currently in in human in rights based approaches to conservation. Maybe I would personally love to see it more like to be the, the central thing that nature conservation needs to be human rights based. Uh, it, it has to include humans as part of that because this also comes from a very Western perspective that we are not part of nature, as we said before. And this already sets, you know, it's a premise for a very, very, very bad movie <laughs> that we are not part of, of nature. I think it's it's cru- like it's crucial to to put the rights perspective in conversation in, when it comes to conservation. Because this way you will be able to uphold human, indigenous, territorial, ancestral, and and other rights. You will be able to recognize what you've done wrong in the past. And in a way, science is showing, like the IPES that we referred to before, that the most conserved, if we want to use this word, areas in this planet are the places where communities have ownership of their landscapes, and they are part of the projects, they are leading the projects, they are, they are taking care of, of what's um, happening around them. So when, when I was interviewing people for my thesis, a lot of them said that rights should be both an overarching principle of the whole biodiversity conversation um, and discussion, but also a target and an indicator when it comes to the new agreement for biodiversity. So we should start developing you know qualitative metrics and and qualitative measures that reflects how well the rights are being respected because there is there is the correlation like that science is there IPES was very clear that the majority of nature in a good state is in the hands and the lands of indigenous peoples there are also many paradigms that are you know um, raising currently also in Western academia, for example, convivial conservation that supports that we should by no means separate humans and nature, but we should put more greens, more green in our, in our cities, in, in the urban um, landscapes, and at the same time, understand how we can live in more rural landscapes and what can we do for that. Uh, there is the idea, the, the movement of decolonizing, decolonizing conservation. There are so many good ideas out there that want to put in the forefront the idea that rights-based approach is the way to go forward. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. I completely agree. A rights-based approach to conservation is so essential. Um, and for people who maybe are wanting to support more environmental conservation that they know encompasses that way of working? Like, what are the signs of conservation projects to know whether they are being more extractive and beneficial um, or that they are encompassing a rights-based approach for environment and community? Because quite often these things can't always be super transparent for people. Um, so I was just wondering if you had any um, perspectives on that that you could share. Well, that's, that's a very, very good question. And I'm sure that there are actually so many people out there that could respond to that more, like with more technical details. But since this is for a broader audience, my knowledge, I guess, would do as a starting point. I think you actually said the right word. Transparency is such an important topic. Where do the money come from? Who pays for that? Who is the donor? How will this project decided how was this project designed um, where the stakeholders 
And when I say stakeholders, not just you know the the the, the elected government, but where local people consulted, where uh, was everyone consulted in that pro- project? Was the knowledge that led to the design of this project knowledge that came from a university far far away, or where the people of the landscape that are living there and have their livelihoods there, were they involved? Uh, was their understanding of the landscape involved? Were the researchers that planned for this conservation project, they, they give back to the community the knowledge they took from them and like, okay, you go there, you understand the people that live in the landscape, you understand what they have to say, but do you come back to explain what your data was all about? Other signs, transparency is for, is for sure, like all of these questions, I think, can be go back to transparency. And then how was it even decided that this place has to be um, a nature reserve? Who is the decision maker in this situation? Is, for example, this X country in Europe that this decides that in this X country in Africa, this has to be a nature reserve? And if yes, why? And like what what is so there are so many questions that need to be answered and again we often when we talk about conservation we talk about quantitative metrics so we say now we have 10 square meters of a nature protected protected nature like protected area what does it mean does this have any ecological like ecological representation in there what's happening with them um, with the species that live there what are your metrics for that what is happening with the village that lives next to this area? Are, are indigenous plants, if we talk also about restoration, because that's also you know a very hot topic currently, are indigenous plants planted there or is just random trees um, that were just cheap uh, when it comes to seeds and they are planted there? Do we embrace the complexity of the forest, for example, which is not just trees, but there is so much happening in this ecosystem? So... There are so many different things. And again, I know that this can, a lot of people could say, oh, but this is so discouraging because it's so complex. Why can't we stay in simple metrics? But biodiversity is not simple. So how can we expect to solve or solve, not solve, but address such a complex topic with a simplistic solution that is, oh, we designate 10 square meters as a protected area and like, and I'm not saying that this is, you know, the case everywhere. There are, I'm sure there are amazing projects out there. There are so many amazing people doing things. But then when the results are not qualitative, and this includes rights of people, then it means that something needs to be changed. Eh? No, thank you. That was super helpful. And I'm sure that that will be a great starting point for a lot of people who are new to kind of learning about a rights-based approach and and how we need to move forwards in conservation to ensure that it centres the rights of people at the heart of it. So you talked a bit about your Masters in Environmental Policy and Sustainable Development Diplomacy and how it had a focus upon inclusion of Indigenous perspectives and other knowledge in global environmental policies. It would be great if you could talk a little bit more about this research and also the role that environmental policy plays in connecting biodiversity and human rights in adopting a rights-based approach. Cool. Um, So, yeah, I was lucky enough, as I said, to... Know, get a, a glimpse of the world of environmental policy, which maybe I should be very, very upfront about. It. Policy is an amazing tool 
but it shouldn't be considered the solution to everything. It's just a tool in the toolkit of addressing the climate and the biodiversity crisis. Because I know if I can just make a small like brackets uh, box here, there are a lot of people that either think activism on the streets is the way to go, lobbying is the street the way to go, individual changes are the way to go, policy change is the way to go. Honestly, I think everything needs to be considered. So environmental policy is just one of the tools we need. And when you have a policy, it doesn't mean that it's going to be applied. It just means that there is some document somewhere there that you can refer to when you want to fight for a cause and that you can say that this document is formal and it's agreed by the ex-government of any level, at any like from local to regional to to global. So, of course, a good environmental policy can be seen as a win. What is good in environmental policy is a debate for another time. Uh, <laughs> but I think to maybe start the question from, from the end, a good environmental policy is a policy that is applied. If a policy is not applied, no matter how well written it is, no matter how much it talks about environmental human rights, no matter how many good words it uses, unless it can be applied and unless it's implemented, it's still a bad policy. And I know that language changing and discourse changing is super important. I personally really think that you need to change the discourse when it comes to things if you want to start changing things as well with an impact in the real world. But then you cannot just stay there in the words. If you're not able to apply the policy, this means your policy is not good enough because you didn't consider all the parameters that you have to consider to apply it. Now, on what role it can play, I think, I think in a way I already answered through my little uh, journey in this past two minutes. It's changing the language. So giving people the space in international um, arenas to demand more things and talk more about things. So for example, when it comes to the biodiversity agreement, the global biodiversity agreement of the conventional biological diversity rights, we're not always in there. This came through literally the, the amazing work of so many people um, that worked for 30 years in this space to start including the words rights, equity, respect. And a lot of people were saying, oh, this is outside the scope of biodiversity. And for many, many years, this meant that this was outside the scope of biodiversity national policies because they were like, oh, look, the global agreement doesn't have that. So why do I have to care about rights and just doing a policy for, for this nature space there, this forest? So I think it can really, you know, give a leverage to people to fight on a, a global environmental policy, can really give leverage to people to fight on a regional level, to fight on a local level. And it gives language, like gives space for new language for sure. And yeah, I think I think these are the two things that I think. like it doesn't necessarily mean that if you have human rights in policy that they will be respected. It's the same. We have a law to not kill each other, but we still have murders in this planet. So it doesn't mean that if it's in a document, it's not going to happen, right? It's just that we know that the language is there, we know that the idea is there, and but then we can push for more and more and more and we can push for implementation and we can push for projects to be there 
we can push for funding that supports projects that are there. If the language is already informal, globally agreed or regionally agreed or, or, or a national policy, you can really push for funding, I guess, that, um, that can come there. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you. And yeah, I think what you mentioned about how environmental policy, it's like one part of a toolkit, I think is really important to recognize as well, because it's part of a bigger thing, like it can support actions happening, or it can help prevent certain things that are incredibly damaging from happening. But it in its own right, isn't going to fix everything. Um, so it comes back to recognizing that there's no sort of one thing we can grasp on as like the quote unquote solution. To, to everything it's going to be so multifaceted uh, so yeah I really appreciate you highlighting that as well and yeah I'm, I'm learning so much from you in this conversation which is amazing and I know that this is such a oh. complex topic <laughs> but yeah I know this is such a complex topic as well so yeah I really appreciate your just amazing wealth of knowledge in responding to these it's really really helpful and yeah on to another incredibly big complex question but it's one that <laughs> <laughs> as if there haven't been enough already <laughs> but um yeah basically I wanted to make a bit of a comparison between sort of grassroots organizations and mass global nonprofits because it sometimes seems that the ethics can sadly be quite diluted as an organization seems to expand and have a larger reach. Um, that is a generalization, it's not always the case, but I was really interested to hear your insights and thoughts on this and how we can kind of navigate ethics when acquiring funding, for example, if, if you are trying to do incredibly positive work but needing funding to do that and yeah, many non-for-profits want to do that in really important work. But yeah, there's just a lot of difficulties in navigating all of that space. So yeah, I'd really appreciate your insights on that. Oh my God, that's probably the, the hardest question. <laughs> I think that if everything else was a complex topic, we're now entering on a new level of complexity. <laughs> because there are so many things I could say for this one. And again, this doesn't come over from a place of, me being super knowledgeable about that so I think I'm going to give like all of what I said today is just my fully personal you know understanding of the matter it doesn't mean that it represents Gibbon or, or GLF or, or anyone else it's just my uh, very very personal opinions Whew. so is there really such a thing as ethical money in this world today <laughs> are we getting a lot of not, like very philosophical now but like the idea of it's super important to know where this money comes from, right? And if I would personally be comfortable getting money from a billionaire, for example, which I know that to become a billionaire, you really have to exploit people, which means that this money are definitely not yeah, more ethic, most ethical money around. So would I be if I if I had an NGO, would I be comfortable in getting money from a billionaire? So the the easy answer would be no, but then you, if you start seeing the complexities there, is we need in, in, the, in the system we are operating in, we need money, right, to, to make projects. There is no other way currently to, to make um, progress. You really need to, to pay, like, I mean, otherwise it's all volunteer work. And as youth very well knows, there is so much volunteer 
volunteer work, lead internships, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, we don't want any more than that, right? We need professionals and students and interns and everyone to be compensated for for the work they do. So the first thing is, of course, you have to pay the people that work there, and then uh, because they have to earn a living, and then of course you also have probably to support with funds the project. So following this more complex part of the answer is a question. It not, not necessarily a billionaire, any super rich person that wants to fund my, my NGO. <laughs> How do they want to fund me? What are the deliverables that they want from me? Um, how am I selected? Even that is really important. Do they just handpick me because they just liked what I do? Or do I go through a process? So that means that I will have to explain what I'm going to do. And then who is going to judge me for what I'm going to do? Is, is just a person or will there be like responsible professional that will assess my project and they will understand um, what I'm doing and they will make an informed decision over what I'm doing. Um, so you see that the complexity of the answer can also lead to a yes eventually. But then I know in, in, its, very, in its very essence, there is no ethical money under capitalism, right? It's not, and we should be okay with that in a way. Not, not we should be okay in the sense of, okay, let's, let's continue being like that. But we should understand that money will always, unfortunately, the way the world is currently, come from a place that is not necessarily the most ethical space. Then, of course, it doesn't mean that all money is the same. There is money that, money flows that come from wars, money flows that come from other cruel things and there are money flows that come from less uh <laughs> less cruel things is that is that a way to say that there are money that come from from funds that are governmental funds does this mean that they are necessarily better in many cases it could um i think the most important part is is the process because what i see many times is you know that there is a funder that wants specific deliverables and then they want out so it's like, okay, you, you have this, these deliverables, take this amount of money. Um, I didn't even do research for you. Just take this amount of money. And then in two years, I'm just leaving. And I can say that I did, you know, my green um, good deed of the day. So this is not a sustainable project. The funds should be coming by, by potentially a central fund. I'm not an economist myself, but they should be coming for, for the environment. It should be a multi-governmental agreement that there is this fund that goes to environmental issues, that there is this fund that will support young people's grassroots organizations, even like the Global Biodiversity Network. Because, again, going back to that, unfortunately, in the society we live, we do need those funding to make the... Uh, the the everything flow, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive at the same time to, you know, make all those things super transparent and also disrupt the system that makes money being so um, unsustainable. Let's start with that. And in many cases, not ethical. Yeah. Not sure I actually answered your question, but this is such, such a hard topic. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. There is definitely no easy answer to this question in any way or really an answer. Um, but I really, really resonate so much with what you're saying about there isn't really an ethical way to make money in a system that's so exploitative. But 
yeah it's the responsibility to do what whatever we can to to source money from the least exploitative way and be transparent about Mm -hmm. the complexities of that because it's Mm -hmm. kind of comes back to that thing of you know if if you discuss things in a way that is quite anti-capitalist a strong counter argument to that is oh but you're participating in this system and it's like but what is the current alternative and that's Mm -hmm. something that you do need to recognize because people do have to live in some way regardless of whether it's a system you agree with or not we're kind of at the moment stuck in it so we have to kind of find whatever ways we can to to do the least damage possible um, mm-hmm. and obviously mm-hmm. for for organizations trying to to do work that involves money to fund it it's it's such a com- complex area to unpack mm-hmm. and there there are definitely what we call in the environmental sector there are definitely donors that do their job well but they also demand transparency that they also demand to they have panels of people that are scientists and experts to understand the projects. They are really doing a great work in funding projects and not just funding projects for two, three years, but looking for ways to make these projects sustainable on themselves so they can also survive after your fund is, is, um, is done. So I think it's important to recognize that, you know, as well. It's not all dark and it's not all grey. And while we have to recognise the complexities, as you said, of more questions like, is there any ethical money? Is it's like any ethical production or consumption under capitalism? One, we can't take this weight on ourselves. Me as an individual, I can't take the whole burden of capitalism on my on my and single-handedly disrupt it. At the same time, I could very well, like I have the privilege to say, okay, I'm not participating in capitalism anymore because I'll go to my village and just live there alone. I'll I'll have my garden. Totally amazing if this is what you need to do in life. But if you choose to participate in in society in a way or another, you participate in capitalism, you participate in those financial flows. And it's not necessarily all, all green. Like there are a lot of initiatives, there are a lot of donors, there are a lot of monetary flows that are doing much better than others um, and they are opting for this transparency and they are opting for this help us become better there are so many donors that go to organizations and they're like okay how can we make this um, sustainable how can we make this work um, and I think that this it's really important to recognize is it the change that we need is it as quick as we want probably not but I think it's good recognizing that the change is also there because also, you know, the majority of those inter- like organizations, environmental organizations, again, they are people with good intentions. And I think it's really important to recognize that. And they are all participating in the unlearning. And in many cases, donors are also people with good intentions. It's not, it's easy to just see those things as black and white. But is there, like, there are some things that are black and white and you could easily see that as black and white as well, but from a practical perspective, there's so much gray space in there. And I think it's important to recognize that, be transparent about that, be transparent from where your money comes from and how you were selected and what was the process. And if you're opting for the project, you're supporting to become sustainable in the future and like sustain itself. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, for sure. Thank you. And trying to maybe stay on that strain of optimistic thinking. Um, I'd love to hear if you have any examples of some great environmental conservation programs or organisations that you would like to share about and maybe what it is for you that inspires you about their work. I do have a few people in mind. Most of them are local initiatives. Um, So they are not like big organisations. And most of them balance between restoration and conservation, um, which I also find you know quite interesting. That these things are like can be quite separated, but sometimes they can also be part of each other. Because when you restore an ecosystem, then I guess the goal should also be for the ecosystem to stay there, <laughs> so you don't have to restore it again in the future. Uh, so in, in the organization I'm, I'm working for, we do have this project that is called the Restoration Stewards. Um, and it's really a project, like, I have to be very honest about that. Even if I was not working for this organization, this would be a project I would really, really like. Because it's what Restoration Stewards are, is a project where you invite young people that are already making changes in their landscapes and young people that have a project already um, and they are working on this project from all around the world to apply for this fund. And then they get a year, you know, of mentorship and support and financial support and, and educational activities and connection with experts that are close to their area of work. And through this thing, we've been running this project for two years now. And we've had in total more than 400 applications in these two years. Even though we can't afford to support all of those people, I honestly, if I could, I would support them all. Because the stories that come from what is happening on the ground from locally led initiatives is amazing. It's groundbreaking. It's phenomenal. It's I, I wish I knew more words in English to describe how amazing this is because those people are actually taking, like, changing their landscapes themselves and taking actions. And usually with very little means, you know, like with very little money that we previously discussed because it's very hard to attract money if you're like a small project. They are doing things, um, volunteer bases next to their work or their studies, and they are everywhere. So I think, if anything, I would say that... This connects a lot with the previous question. These are the people that should re- be really supported. Like big organizations should, should strive to connect those people on the ground that are already doing things with the global financial flows. And in this way, they see upscale conservation and restoration that is happening already on the ground because there is no reason for it to be top down. There is no reason for me from Europe to go and decide that. In Kenya, we need to have this project. There is a Kenyan that is already doing this project. So let's let's connect this person with some money and let's connect this person and, and support this person in getting their project to the next level. Now, if I had to pick only one, it's very, very unfair. Uh, but since next week we have an event on the Amazon um, region, I would talk about a project um, that is not in the Amazon region. It's in a forest that is in the Latin, in Latin America. It's an Argentinian girl. Her name is Anali Bustos. And she is a PhD student uh, of agricultural sciences. She's a biologist. She is like this, this wonderful girl. She, she has studied in Argentina and in Brazil and has studied forest ecosystems for so long. 
And they do, she has now an organization, she's part of an organization, a youth-led one, that is called uh, Proyecto Reserva Natura Monte Alegre. And what they do basically is that they target different aspects of conservation and restoration. So they do have a political perspective to that, which means connecting with the local government, creating space for dialogue with the local government, like seeing, connecting to the global, uh, to, not sorry, to the regional and the national network of uh, natural reserves, um, and like seeing how they can create, connect with a political momentum, for example, or even, you know, inspire a political momentum of, of um, restoration and conservation. They do have the environmental perspective, which is basically how they have their seeds and they do have their understanding of, of the indigenous species that are there and what is needed to, to do reforestation with native species. And they also have the social aspect, which means that they involve fully the community there with educational projects, with, um, with knowledge sharing. So they share their knowledge as scientists and they also get the knowledge from communities that live in the area that they have the, their understanding of the landscape. So I think this is what makes me really love this project. And most of the projects that we've seen, that they really are uh, looking into in the intersections that need to be looked at, looking at all the different perspectives that you have to look into a project. And then promising you, there are so many good projects like that out there. And what we would really need is an amazing way to connect decision-making on the high level, financial flows with those projects on the ground because they are really making a change in a smaller scale. The thing is upscaling that, upscaling to the landscape level, upscaling to the regional level, upscaling to the global level, like a huge movement of people just restoring their neighborhoods. How amazing would that be? <laughs> That would be wonderful. And yeah, the project you shared sounds amazing. Um, so thank you so much for that. And yeah, this brings such a, a more hopeful and community-led approach, which is so, so crucial. And you touched on it a little bit there about um, intersectionality and you have a deep interest, which I also share in intersectional environmentalism. And so I'd love to hear what this term encompasses for you and how it informs all the work that you do and approach to conservation. Intersectional environmentalism. I, 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 I love this idea, not just because I love words, which I do. <laughs> As I said, I read a lot of books, so words are something very important for me. But when I started looking into the intersectionality, I think, and... I may be wrong, but it started more in the concept of feminism uh, initially. And then um, there are amazing people that put forward the idea of intersectional environmentalism. And I would argue personally that this is not a new thing because a lot of communities around the world are saying that, you know, we are part of the environment, our livelihoods are part of the environment, our rights are part of the environment, our land is part of, of nature. So intersectionalities are already there, but for some reason we have brought up all these silos and we are talking only about nature, only about racism, only about uh, feminism. 
this again, and I, <laughs> I've said that many times <laughs> today, but taking out the complexity of a situation is not going to solve the situation just because you simplify it. It's not going to be solved because you just simplify it on paper. You just simplified it on words. But if you don't recognize the complex systems that are in place, you will never be able to address them. So we can't talk about restoration without talking about environmental racism. We can't talk about restoration without talking about women's rights. We can't talk about restoration without talking about health. Like where is, especially now we live in the midst of the global pandemic where scientists and knowledge holders and experts came up again and again and said, this zoonosis is a sign that we are doing something really wrong with the planet. We are pushing nature. Deforestation is, is, is a big problem because humans are going to come in contact with things we've never been in contact before. The way animals are in cages in industrial agriculture has historically been a reason for zoonosis to go from animals to humans. So how can you avoid those intersections, right? Like, how can you not talk about those things? How can you talk about conservation if you don't talk about colonialism? And what does it mean? Or extractivism without talking about colonialism. So this is not here to just be, you know, this intellectual conversation among people sitting in a university. It's more that, yeah, we understand that these are complex things, but not recognizing that they're complex, it's not going to make them less complex. I could not agree more with that. Um, yeah, 100% in agreement in every single way. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> So <laughs> I just have one final question for you. Um, I appreciate there's been a lot, but I've had so much that I've just really wanted to ask you. And it's been so wonderful hearing your perspectives on all of these things. I'm immensely Aww. grateful. <laughs> it's been so fun for me as well. <laughs> I want to hear yours though. I hope uh, someday you can do like a podcast where you just talk and you say to us your opinions. <laughs> Maybe one day. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> but yeah, the final question I have for you, um, which I always ask on the podcast, which is how you find your little bit of lagum. So lagum being a Swedish concept, meaning not too little, not too much. So really about finding balance. And I'd love to hear how you find yours. Oh, wow. <laughs> your questions get progressively harder, eh? <laughs> it's so fun that I think this is the trickiest question of the world right now. Um, how do I find my balance? Mm, well, I think it's inevitable to live in this world and um, live in this world exactly on this era and work in the arena that I work, in the sphere that I work, and not get a little bit anxious or depressed <laughs> at cases. Um, so yeah, climate anxiety is a big thing. Um, it's a lot of questioning, am I doing the right thing? Am I taking the space of somebody else that should be here instead of me? Um, am I talking too much? How can I use the privileges that society gave me to, to give back to, to society? 
Um, so all these questions can really bring you out of balance, along with other things that happen in people's life. I think the first thing that is helping me a lot is getting into communities. And I think that's the way for everyone to find the one of the ways that everyone can find their, their group is to get into communities, to feel that they are not alone, given that we've already discussed is a way to do that, but also communities in your neighborhoods, on your um, on the on the place you live, in person, something small, it doesn't have to change the world. It's it's enough if it changes how you feel about things. So yeah, being part of the community, I think it's definitely a way. And in a more personal level, I I really, really like, I still like being in nature. I think that this is not special by no means, but it doesn't have to be. I think we as humans, we are we are animals, right? It's it's so much better to be outside. I love being under the sun. I love running and climbing and moving my body and touching the grass and swimming in the sea. So I think every time I'm away from a screen and every time I'm just outside in nature, which can actually be a park in the city if you are lucky to have one, I think that this is the calmest my, my heart is ever being. This is how I find my balance after a long day. Friends, family, my cat, <laughs> everything that you love, I think, can give you that. Um, but yeah, mostly the things I, I mentioned before. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so, so much. And yeah. Oh. I almost, not almost, I totally forgot we're doing a podcast. I don't know what, like, in what scenario uh, you could just be asking me questions and I won't ask questions back. <laughs> but in this bizarre situation, <laughs> I felt this was such a lovely discussion. And thank you so much for holding space for this. You are literally so nice and sweet. And I don't know, I felt very safe being really myself here <laughs> and telling you what I personally feel. Think, right it's uh, yeah <laughs> oh, I'm really really glad to hear that um, and it's yeah it's been such a joy speaking with you thank you Edini I'm so grateful for your time and wonderful energy and all of the knowledge that you shared today I've been sure to include links um, in the episode notes so that you can find out more about Irini's work or get in touch with her see what she's getting up to as well if any questions have come up for you or reflections from this episode or any of the others, you're always welcome to send me an email on a little bit of Largum at gmail.com or you can just DM me on Instagram at a little bit of Largum. It's always great to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening and I'll speak to you again soon. Bye.